Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello, welcome to episode nine of the Youth and Education LKM Co podcast. This episode is coming after a bit of a break for the summer. I've been working on a really interesting project um, about youth homelessness and had a bit of time out with my family. But we're back with a bang. This episode features Kat Scutt, who's the Director of Education and Research at the Charter College of Teaching. Really, really enjoyable conversation with Kat. Very wide-ranging. We spoke about her new role at the Chartered College of Teaching. We spoke about the impact of research on teaching and what teachers can do to find out more about different kinds of research. We spoke about creating a culture in schools that embraces evaluation, but also the possibility of failure if it turns out that the evidence suggests something's not working. Um, Spoke about Kat's early career as a teacher and how she got involved in technology via a kind of lucky secondment and sabbatical opportunity and how that led to what she does now. We also spoke about her love of water sports and how that's come about. So many interesting things. So I hope that you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. And yeah, let's get geeking. LKM co-believe society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Dr. Cat Scott. <laughs> not yet, not yet. Not yet? Oh, okay. No, see, I'm, 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 only, uh, I'm in year four of my PhD. Okay, almost Dr. Katz Katz. Well, maybe not that almost. Two more years, I think. I think I'm going <laughs> six. But, uh... Fair enough. Okay, all right. So, um, good afternoon. Good afternoon. We're sitting here in the off- in, um, office come meeting room come interview space of the Chartered College of Teaching. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. All right. Thank you for being here. Yeah, so first off... Um, the third space event yep. that just happened. I know you've had a you've had your first one. Can you tell me a little bit about what what the um, what it was and, and how it went? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea for these events really came up from discussions that we've been having um, over the past few months about the effective ways to uh, to connect research and practice. And um, I think it was first actually mooted during uh, a Twitter chat on a UK EdRes chat, which is something that uh, Karen Vespiza runs on a Thursday evening. Um, bit of a plug for that there. And this idea that um, it's not it's not necessarily so much about um, the things research and practice, it's about connecting researchers and practitioners, and that's really what was at the centre of the Third Space Day. It's about connecting people as much as connecting ideas and creating more effective links between, uh, between teachers and between those working in academic settings, because I think historically the nature of both of those roles can mean that sometimes there's a bit of disconnect there so we designed the whole day around the idea of giving people opportunity to talk we did have some kind of classic keynotes but much more of the day was designed around collaborative sessions 
um, we we tried some some new things which actually did work really well. We had um, at lunchtime we ran a series of small round tables discussing topics hosted by people who'd previously hosted Twitter chats around areas around uh, education research and basically debated some key topics, three questions um, over half an hour. We heard such powerful, buzzy conversation taking place and really interesting interactions. We were lucky that we got a really good balance of people from all sorts of different roles um, within schools, teachers, school leaders, um, people working in teacher training, people working in research. We had uh, students looking at different areas of education. So a really good mix. And it, it, you know, it would, we hoped that it would be powerful bringing them together. And it certainly seemed to be. So how did you get that balance? It's quite unusual to have such a wildly balanced audience sometimes. I think uh, that it was largely kind of the way that we promoted it. It was kind of designed as very much being a that's, that's what it was all about and making sure that we had things that appealed to people from those different settings. Um, and it, several people commented on the fact that actually at conferences it tends to be one or the other. Um, and we also balanced that with the speakers. So we made sure that we had uh, classroom practitioners talking about what they'd done, but also we had people working for research agencies and uh, people from universities talking about the work they'd done too, which naturally meant perhaps that they were sort of connecting into their uh, their networks to get people along. So, yeah, it just, I mean, luck is not a completely uh, fair answer, but it did balance out really, really well. Mm, so what do you hope to... What did you hope to achieve and like, what were the next steps? Really, it was for, for this one, it was, I mean, describing as a pilot in the sense that it was our, our first one. Um, the idea of the journals, uh, sorry, the idea of the third space events is that they take the themes of the journals that they follow. So we have termly uh, journals and with the third space events, we want to follow up on some of those themes. In many cases, our speakers were people who had also written for the journal. So it was a chance to kind of expand on some of the ideas from that. They're held a couple of months after the journal was published to allow time for uh, people who've read or engaged with the journal to go away, try some things, reflect on them, and then come back and be in a position to perhaps interrogate some of those areas further. So we will be hosting, uh, our next one is in November in Bristol, and that's looking at the theme of assessment. Uh, Our September copy of Impact is guest edited by uh, Dylan William and is looking at all different areas around assessment so it'll be great to follow that up um, they will rotate around the country it's very much an idea of it not just being kind of one London centric event but something that um, that we're able to engage people all around the country with and also um, through our network approach which will be launching in September allowing and supporting schools to run their own sort of charter college events and networks there'll be opportunities for uh, for schools to access speakers and access materials to run their own events that's a great idea the um network approach seems to be really kind of popular and quite effective at the moment like if i'm thinking about things like women ed they've definitely gone for kind of a network and regional approach um i think bme ed's probably going to go for a similar kind of thing as well so it's really powerful especially you know, we're sitting here in London at the moment, um, but we both don't live in London, which mm. is interesting um, because a lot of educational and, and definitely kind of policy based things tend to be London based. And it's nice to be able to not everyone can access that. I think it's really important for us um, because we're working with teachers that actually it needs to be our events are primarily held on Saturdays or after school to enable people to attend them, even if they're not able to get cover, because we appreciate the challenge for that and the sort of limitations that can place on people being able to access things. But obviously that immediately has an impact on how far people are able to travel. If you want to do a, a two hour evening session, it's not realistic to expect someone to travel for three hours to get there. So being able to harness the power of uh, the fantastic networks that we're able to develop and our fantastic members is a really critical part of how we can expand and increase our reach. And I think, you know, we love when we can host events in schools. That's fantastic because actually there's something really appealing for teachers about going and seeing 
another school seeing what's happening in another school because it's such an intense job you you know you can sometimes be um kind of quite narrowly focused on your own setting and that chance to just visit and connect with people elsewhere is really powerful mm, it's wonderful okay so i'm gonna um do a bit of an abrupt turn i guess <laughs> and the first thing is um i noticed i know that you're kind of cornwall based most beautiful bit of the country one of the um so i noticed uh when i was doing a bit of research that there's a kind of a strong thread of water sports love of sports like i'm um, running through your kind of life and career can you tell me a little bit more about that yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I've always been quite passionate about all sorts of different uh, water sports and outdoor sports. Uh, my dad was a scout leader, so I'm not sure if that was the initial influence, was sort of going on uh, various scouting events um, with him and uh, doing all sorts of kayaking and um, open canoeing and bits of climbing and things like that. But I've always kind of engaged with that and was very keen canoeist when I was at university, did quite a lot of competition at that point. Um, and I suppose it also kind of linked with my passion for teaching in the sense that I quite quickly became a coach and I really enjoy that kind of coaching experience. Um, so that's, that's tied in there. I did a couple of summers. I I can't imagine now looking back now, I'm not sure why I thought this was a good idea, but when I was just, uh, first starting teaching during my six week summer holiday, I worked at an outdoor center, uh, because I needed to get my coaching hours up, but um yes uh you know something that's always been really of interest to me and I do love learning new things as well so I do tend to try and develop new sports I enjoy that bit where you kind of there's quite a sharp improvement curve when you first start things um so yes we moved to Cornwall uh, about three years ago to be a little bit closer to to the surf and to the uh the rivers and to the climbing and mountain biking and everything else that we wanted down there mm. so uh is it kayak polo yeah, so canoe polo. Canoe polo. Yes. What is that? Um, it's a bit like water polo, but in a kayak. Uh, it's a five-a-side sport. You play indoors in uh, Olympic-sized swimming pools or outside on lakes. And I'm delighted to say this is good. This is a good question to ask because uh, as a PhD student at the Institute of Education um, at UCL, I'm able to compete for the university still. And my ladies' team are uh, student champions this oh, year, which is fantastic. So uh, yeah, we had a, a big competition. Um, in April, uh, so yeah, it's uh, still. I, I don't play as much as I used to, but I uh, still certainly like to be part of that team. Do you know, I, lo- I love interviewing people and talking to them because you find out things you didn't even know existed. I was like, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I think there's some claim that it's the the fastest growing canoe sport in the country. It's quite. I mean, it's certainly very big at university level, and there's uh, there's about five or six clubs that play in London, oh. um, and then uh, there's. Um, there's four different regional, but well, sort of four national league, leagues across different uh, areas, and there's uh, three divisions of regional events in London as well. So, so why water in particular? Like, did you grow up near the sea or something? No, no. I think actually, I mean, lots of places seem to claim to be the furthest point from the sea. Um, actually, most of them places that I've lived quite near. So. Um, I think someone has once told me, and I don't know how accurate this is, this is absolutely not evidence-informed, although there is a, a map on the wall behind us, so maybe we could check that. Um, lived quite near kind of Aylesbury and Buckinghamshire and worked yeah, in Aylesbury, Aylesbury for a bit, and that's supposed to be very, very far from the sea. But the same is also claimed for Birmingham, where I uh, studied and taught. So, um, no, so, so not at all growing up near the, uh, near the sea. But maybe, that was, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's that desire to get closer to something which is very different. Yeah, because I teach uh, in King's Langley, which is kind of the western of course, bit of yeah. Hertfordshire, uh, not that far from Aylesbury, and it's, no, there's not a lot of sea going around there. No, well, I'm going to say I'm going to add in another thing that you probably don't know, which is uh, so I used to live in Rickmansworth um, on a canal boat for six years. So uh, very much, and that was uh, again an opportunity to be close to the water. Um, hey. Yeah. 
Um, so something that is more prevalent on your LinkedIn profile is I noticed a really strong thread of technology running through your career. Um, and I was just wondering what led to the interest. So it looked like around like 2011-ish onwards, what led to that interest? That's a really interesting question because in a way it was a, a bit of an accident. Um, and I think it, it's actually quite connected to some of the work that we're doing as a chartered college now because at that point I'd been, uh, I'd been teaching, I was an English teacher and was kind of figuring out what my next career step was. And it was a bit of a challenge because I love teaching, but I didn't particularly see head of department as something that I was desperate to do um, because for me that seemed to be sort of moving further away from the things that I really enjoyed about teaching. Um, and the same was true uh, with sort of head of year roles and things like that. I had always engaged quite a lot in various sort of running various clubs. Um, you might guess from my background, again, engaging with things like um, the uh, Duke of Edinburgh Award and running projects like that. Also, as an English teacher, there's always lots of things that you can run, like plays and things like that. And I you know, really enjoyed all of those sides. But actually, the opportunities in school, apart from the very traditional routes through into uh, management, really didn't exist very much at that point. Um, there weren't things like research roles. There weren't even really CPD uh, lead roles. And um, it was by chance that I'd I suppose I was always quite good with technology, quite interested in using technology, but it was just that we didn't have anyone uh, leading on some of our online platforms in the school I was working in, so I had a chance to uh, to be part of leading that, and that involved a lot of delivering CPD for teachers, um, and I suppose that was a thing that I found that was really exciting, and I was really lucky to have the chance to um, go and do a sort of short-term project with another local school um, who'd received some funding to look at their use of digital tools to support teaching and learning. Um, and I was even luckier that the school I was currently working at allowed me to sort of take that as a, a sabbatical and opportunity to go and work there. Um, and really just it just moved on from there. So I felt that actually it was really exciting and it was a really interesting area to be working in and the ways in which digital tools can support teachers in working together effectively and when they're used right, which absolutely doesn't always happen, they, they can support what's happening in the classroom. So uh, that's sort of the direction my career went from that point, and that ended up leading me into doing a master's and uh, subsequently a PhD, which in itself then led me into the sort of research role which I'm undertaking now. Your PhD, which is still underway, <laughs> um, is about the role of stimulation for leadership development. Right. Uh, simulation. Did I just say simulation? My apologies. Simulation. <laughs> that could be it's a, 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 yeah, <laughs> a whole different uh, PhD. But um, <laughs> yes, uh, yes. So I'm looking at basically uh, this is drawing on some of the areas around kind of medicine and uh, military where simulation is used really, really widely in training and development because they're perceived as being sort of really high risk roles where, you know, and the same with the kind of classic flight simulator before you ever let somebody behind. Um, a, the, I don't know if it's the wheel of an aeroplane, that probably doesn't sound accurate, the controls of an aeroplane. Um, they, you know, there's this idea of engaging in sort of simulation. And I was quite interested in investigating if there are other areas which are kind of also, I think, quite, quite critical, um, but where actually that's not something that's been used. So started looking, there are some, some, there's some use of simulation in teacher development in the US in particular, but it's a very challenging thing because it's very hard to simulate accurately um, a sort of teaching or leadership environment. So what I'm actually really focusing on now is sort of decision-making simulation. So supporting uh, school leaders in understanding how they 
make decisions, um, what are the things that inform their decision making, and this is something that can be used as part of a leader development programme or indeed with existing uh, leaders, and it is really about that kind of self-reflection, so um, in a way perhaps the best way to describe it is almost a bit like a uh, who wants to be a millionaire kind of thing where you have to pick some answers and you then, uh, you've got opportunities to kind of phone a friend to consult, you can uh, you know, you could go to the evidence to say what does the evidence say about this, you could go with your own instinct and it really it is not designed in any way to be a kind of this is the answer it's it's about understanding that actually every decision you make there are a myriad things that could um that could come out of that and that actually you might make what is technically the right decision but if you aren't consulting with your team there's a potential that that won't have the effect that you hope and that even um you know the best evidence that we have is not always uh on its own sufficient to make the right decision for your environment so that's really interesting actually because i'm just thinking uh so when I first became like a head of department or whatever it was, there wasn't really a great deal of training. It, it just kind of happened because my boss went off sick. Um, and then you kind of learn on the job a little bit. And uh, it might not be fair for me to say now, but my experience with some leadership stuff, uh, especially educational leadership, has been... Um, it's very theory-based, so there's lots about what kind of leader are you, this kind of thing, but not that much about actually making a decision or how to really manage your team mm-hmm. and all the kind of day-to-day things that actually help you to be a really effective leader when you don't really know what you're doing. Um, and it sounds like what you're yeah. talking about is gives you a bit more of a, you know, what would you do in this scenario if that happens and this happens and so on and so forth. Well, I think that's ex- your, your point there about, you know, the kind of theory versus practice is, is really critical because that's, that's the really challenging bit to get in that actually, of course, having a chance to practice being a leader is one of the most powerful parts of developing. But usually that does happen once you're already a leader because although we're seeing more and more of schools being able to do things like seconding, seconding people onto senior leadership teams or doing job swaps and job shadowing, which is fantastic, that's still not that widespread. Um, and obviously, you know, that, that idea that you you want to have a chance to do something, to have reflection, to have uh, time to talk about that is really key. And um, the project that I'm working on involves a lot of uh, engagement with a kind of mentor and coach to get that sense of reflecting on what you've done and the decisions that you've made and why you made those decisions and sort of helping you to understand what the impact of those might be. Being aware that uh, there are all sorts of things that can influence things and that there's no sort of single silver bullet that one can do that will answer all of your problems is, is quite critical there I think. Do you know I think it's quite interesting when we look at things like recruitment and retention as well that actually you can feel that um, you know that you can't continue with the job where you are but actually maybe we should be more supportive of people saying go and try somewhere else before just leaving the uh, the career altogether because I've, I've certainly worked with teachers in the past who have made that decision that you know they're not happy where they are either whether that's you know that they're they're struggling with um with workload or whether it's that actually just don't feel kind of inspired that i think you know that that chance to kind of experience something new uh, in a or the same role but somewhere else is a, a really interesting idea mm. yeah definitely i think it's a shame sometimes for people who are actually excellent teachers but for whatever reason they've had a bad experience in a particular place and then they feel like teaching is not the thing mm. for them when actually it might just be that particular place yeah. it's not it's not the thing for them so yeah you're director of research for the Charter College of Teaching. Right, so I've come into the offices today and I said to you, it feels like a, like a kind of educational startup in a way. You're fairly new into your role. It's a newish organisation. Tell me about kind of the, what are the challenges or what are the exciting things about having a brand new organisation, really? 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, it's a hugely uh, exciting place to be. Uh, I think we launched a members six months ago on Tuesday. Um, and I think I joined about two weeks after that part time. I did a bit of a crossover between uh, my last job and this one. Um, and for me, the, the kind of newness of it is it's a huge part of the appeal. It's incredibly exciting to be here at the start, to feel like you're part of something which I think has been described by some as a kind of once in a, a generation opportunity, which, you know, which it is. And there's a huge amount of pressure attached to that, that, um, you know, there is a bit of a checkered history of professional bodies in teaching and we need to make sure that we get this right. And it, you know, it really, really matters. And there's something quite interesting there in, in terms of how much it reminds me in some ways of being uh, in the classroom that you know you you realize that every decision that you make or every decision that you don't make or every single thing that you do um, has you know a sort of potentially a huge impact and that's it's one of the it's one of the most stressful things about teaching but it's also one of the most satisfying things you know between teaching and now I think it's very hard to find a job where you get such job satisfaction when you get it right and recognition that what you've done has made an actual difference. And so that's a really exciting thing about being part of the Chartered College. We're a small team, but in a sense, a a huge remit and and huge ambition in terms of what we can do to support the profession, um, to start to bring together what is quite a fragmented profession um, in some ways. And, you know, there's lots of different places that people can look for things and there's some really fantastic organisations out there and really our approach is all about uh, sort of connecting and working with those wherever possible so that we can start to sort of really just to give teachers a, a place to go where they know they'll be pointed at things that are useful for them, where they know that they'll be connected to other members of the profession who uh, you know really care about improving and about improving the profession. So, yeah, it's uh, fantastically exciting. But obviously the biggest challenge almost is just how much that we'd like to do and um, the limited capacity and funds that we have to do that so making decisions about what we do now what we do later um, what we concentrate our efforts on and as I said just making sure that we get it right because it matters so much. If there was one thing given your limited capacity at present um, what might it be or what maybe impact you'd like to have? So I think we've got I mean it's not one thing we've got a kind of four key strands which I think are quite connected are all around this idea of um, well you know being informed having the information that you need to support you and making the best decisions in the classroom uh, for you and for your students is absolutely critical and that involves research engagement and engagement with evidence but it also involves really being connected which is our kind of second thing this idea that that comes from being connected to other practitioners um, across the country working in similar settings working in different settings it involves being connected into um, to research and research engagement as well and uh, just creating those kind of human um, connections that are so important to, to drive practice and then sort of building on both of those to an extent is uh, the work that we're doing around the charter teacher program which um, will be launching for a pilot in January which is uh, a program of recognition for uh, excellent teachers and that that sort of links to you know part of the the structure for that will link to evidence engagement and um, effective use of evidence to inform your practice um, and I think that then finally sort of ties us into this fourth idea of trying to raise the status of the profession trying to get teachers the recognition that they deserve I think it's it's really interesting when uh, you talk to someone and you know someone says to you oh you're a teacher and you say yep and they say okay what what age group and it doesn't really matter what you say they'll go oh that sounds hard this idea that teachers aren't respected I don't think is is fair I think they are respected but not respected in a way that people think I want to do that job it's kind of a wow that's amazing that you do that but I wouldn't want to um, because it's you know it's seen as so um, so sort of challenging and what we want to do is to make it you know fundamentally make it the career 
choice that everyone wants to make. Um, so a really kind of highly aspirational um, profession. And I think that all ties into things having, like having the professional status of having a chartered teacher status that, that many other professions have. Uh, it ties into this idea of research engagement and um, that kind of, uh, that, that side of, um, yeah, that side of teaching, which is about engaging with things beyond your own classroom and that sense of being part of a hugely connected and self-supporting profession. So, you know what you're saying about the chartered teacher uh, kind of designation in a way? So I'm thinking my original training was as an engineer. And so it's one of those professions that you can be a chartered engineer. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, there's quite a lot of prestigious status about being that. So there are clear benefits to it. Um, so whenever I think about things to do teaching in that way, I wonder what the kind of equivalence is. So, you know, a friend of mine's a, like a town planner. And if he wants to set up his own private practice, then he has to become chartered or whatever their equivalent is in that. And so there's a clear reason to do it so what would I mean if there isn't one like in your ideal world like what would be the point I guess for someone like me who's a class teacher and wants to do better for example so I think it's quite interesting because uh, you know we're not in any way a regulatory body so we're we're not uh, you know involved in being able to set kind of um, standards of pay or uh, expectations in terms of progression but of course we hope that it will be something that schools will recognize as being useful but um, it's really more about providing people with the opportunity to to develop, to have their development recognised without necessarily going into a leadership or management route, which I suppose ties back to my earlier point that um, that you know there needs to be something that recognises the value of a teacher, a subject specialist in their class who is uh, you know is absolutely at the top of their game, and that's really what the the program is all about we're piloting it with quite a small group in the the first year and that will give us kind of a lot of insight into why the people that are doing it want to do it we've got um you know a huge amount of interest in engaging in that pilot program and really it is from teachers who um who really enjoy the learning process who want to demonstrate what they can do and that they feel it'll be something that will be um a really strong professional status for them rather than being quite so directly attached into uh, into a sort of pay structure or what one is able to do in terms of one's practice but yeah absolutely we'd love it to be the sort of thing where if you're recruiting as a head teacher of uh, a role you see that someone's a chartered teacher and that for you that's a sign of their quality as a teacher um, that's sort of where we'd like to get to. Mm, I think the more I talk to people the more I wonder why the or maybe what didn't quite work with the advanced skills teacher designation, because in essence, that yeah. that was kind of what that was supposed to be. Um, no recognition for people who were great teachers uh, and didn't necessarily want to go down the management, management route. Um, so I guess it's, I don't know, is it a shame that that's not there anymore, or did it quite work? I mean, it's been really interesting um, over the sort of months of research that we've done around other programmes around the world and programmes that have kind of been and gone in the UK, which have sort of similarities to chartership and, you know, kind of looking at the different reasons that some of those things um, didn't continue or some of those things weren't the success that they are. And, you know, that, that is part of the challenge for us to recognise what it is that, that we need to do differently to make this um, a success and something that becomes really valuable. But we hope that uh, the programme that we're designing, which we'll be releasing more details around um, in August or September, mm. will really be something which is a little bit different to all of those, but has very much those same aspirations. So are you able to say about, you looked at things around the world, uh, what did you notice about commonalities between uh, similar types of programmes that did work? 
So, I mean, there is, there's actually a huge amount of commonality in, in terms of the structure of a lot of the programmes. Um, in Lucy Crean's book, uh, which wasn't looking particularly at chartered teacher status, but she looked at the, the is, kind of You're the first teacher. class interviewee who's mentioned that book. <laughs> Clever um, Yeah, yeah there's, there's sort of a section where she compares um, what the, the sort of teacher development programmes look like and the sort of almost the teacher standards within those um, within a range of different countries. And there, there's actually, yeah, a huge amount of commonality in the things that are covered, the things that we define as, as being part of being a teacher, which is quite interesting. There are some uh, interesting differences, but, yeah, just a huge amount that's the same. There are some areas which uh, which relate to um, to things like the idea of it needing reaccreditation, um, so that it's not something that once you've done it, you don't ever have to do it again, because that doesn't really fit with the whole model around the idea that being engaged in continuous development is part of what being an excellent teacher is all about. So um, that's something that, that tends to be quite common. And also, I suppose, this idea of it being very practice-based. And that's one of the challenges for us uh, is to make sure that it's something that would, we can, uh, which we can assess and validate, but that equally is about practice rather than about uh, one's ability to write an academic essay, for example. So there's that differentiation there um, against master's programmes and things like that. Um, so, you know, getting that balance right will be really key. How do you see your role fitting into the overall vision of what's trying to happen? So my role, um, I'm a Director of Education and Research, which means that I oversee the CPD and Charter Teacher area, but also all of our research activities, so our journal, our online platform. And I think those two things interrelate really closely um, because it's not just a, you know, evidence-informed, it's all about actually part of your professional development. So uh, I suppose my team are responsible for sort of defining the strategy for and, and kind of producing almost the content and structures for quite substantial parts of our offer. So I feel incredibly lucky um, to have a chance to be involved in developing some very new things. Um, I've mentioned our journal a couple of times and that was sort of the very first thing that I had to do. Um, I was really lucky that the, the people who were kind of in the interim roles before uh, the college launched had done as much as they possibly could to be prepared for a journal, but at the same time had actually left the quite critical decisions to me, understanding that clearly I'd want to be able to sort of help set direction for that. And they, you know, they'd done a huge amount of research. And so I had a a lot to base those decisions on, but it's incredibly exciting to be able to launch a new journal. It's just not something you get to do every day. So um, it's, it's a really great opportunity to try and create something that really works for teachers, but has a really strong grounding in sort of really high quality research. So, um, lots of new things happening all the time but I think starting to create that kind of coherent sense of what teacher development that's informed by evidence really looks like. Well I'm thinking about you know when we first started talking about your role in the classroom and how you got interested in say like uh, e-learning and virtual learning um, environments and you mentioned that things like director of research and all these kind of things didn't exist at that time and I think about the same thing when I started teaching the, the kind of myriad options that are around now didn't really exist and I was just wondering you know if you'd started teaching now-ish and there'd been some of the opportunities that appear to exist would they have been attractive to you perhaps? Yeah definitely I mean I love um, we're seeing more and more schools having things like research leads has been a huge move towards that and I think you know I think that's fantastic it is that that sense of you know, being able to be a classroom specialist, but also having responsibilities for other areas, having kind of progression and recognition in other areas, something that, you know, that you feel gives you a kind of a wider opportunity to engage with the school. I love those kind of cross-school roles as well. That was, again, always kind of quite a, a big thing for me was, you know, I was always the one that was on the staff committees and things like that. You know, really, uh, I love working with people and, you know, bringing people together and things like that. So absolutely, it would be hugely appealing if, uh, if they had existed at that point. Mm, and what do you... So... 
in terms of teachers who are kind of interested in research and how it can improve their general practice, what do you feel are some of the most exciting developments and opportunities around for them at the moment? I think uh, there's actually just so much out there. And in, a somewhat, in some ways, that's the, the challenge that it's trying to, to sort of know where to start with that. I mean, we've seen huge growth of things like the Education Endowment Foundation, uh, lots of other organisations who are kind of summarising bits of research as well. There's great work from the um, IEE at York uh, and their sort of uh, summaries of research. Fantastic. Also, Research Ed has obviously been hugely powerful as a way of getting people to engage with research in a really impressive uh, organisation there. Um, I hope that the Charter College will be part of the, the kind of really exciting approach. The thing that we've been able to do, which I suppose is a bit different, is provide that access to research for teachers, where uh, actually for many teachers, of course, engaging through the summaries and reviews um, from the EEF and the like is a, a really good starting point. But if you want to delve a bit deeper to understand the detail of that, it can be quite problematic if you're not uh, connected with the university at that point to access some of the resources and the research and that's sort of the, the thing that we, we offered on day one was access to a research database which includes um, over five uh, over 2,000 different journals and ebooks and a huge amount of resources there. Um, I hope that Impact will also, uh, our journal will be part of that. Um, one of my sort of favourite uh, journals is American Educator which is um, uh, a US journal as the name suggests <laughs> uh, targeted at teachers and it's just it's quite interesting some of the uh, uh, approaches that we're taking are, are drawn from that to an extent there was um, there was an article in the TES recently by Nick Rose about the um, I think it was the nine sort of pieces of research that every teacher should know and quite a, a substantial number of those things he referenced were from American Educator mm-hmm. magazine so I think you know there's some really exciting crossover places to go things like the research schools really exciting to see what they're doing and there's just there as I said there's just so much happening because it's it's become um really a huge area of interest and of course with that is also the challenge of uh making it not just feel like a kind of fad that will then disappear it's it's turning that into something that's actually ingrained in the profession as part of our practice so where would you supposing you're a newish teacher now you've got over the stress of your NQT year uh, you've maybe taught for a year or two and you're thinking, yeah, I want to improve my practice a bit. There's a lot of education and there's a lot of research around at the moment. Where can I go? There's just so many things, as we discussed. Where would you recommend that people should kind of start to start their journey? Um, well, you know, I'm absolutely stealing from someone else here, but I would recommend starting with Nick Rose's article, which, which points you at a range of different things. Um, I'll do a hyperlink to it. But yeah, yeah, if you can link to that. One of the things that I think is, is brilliant, and I hope that most teachers have, have come across, is the Sutton Trust study of what makes great teaching, which actually is a very kind of accessible uh, route into understanding some of the, the background to what makes it different in the classroom. It's, it's fantastic. Um, there's some really interesting new things coming out all the time. Obviously, um, the EEF is a great place to start for that. The um, best evidence in brief from IEE is great to keep up to date with new research that's coming out. What does IEE out. stand for? Uh, Institute for Effective Education. That's the one based in York, right? Yeah. yeah. Because I, I was just thinking I didn't know what it stood for. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, some, some really good stuff coming out from them as well. Mm. And absolutely, I mean, I'd recommend things like events like the Research Ed events are a great way to see how teachers are using and engaging in research in practice which I think is is almost the most challenging part it's it's actually fairly straightforward to to go and read a piece of research um, either the original research or a sort of summary of that but being able to uh, think quite critically about it to engage with it to understand what might mean that that would or wouldn't work in a different context and then then to really understand what does that mean for me as a teacher how do I translate that into changing my classroom practice is really important and also quite sophisticated like I was deliberate when I asked you the question in terms of you're a newest teacher but 
you're not in year one, for example, because there's so many things that you have to learn to be a half-decent teacher in the first place and be confident in that to be able to critically engage with what the research is telling you and understand it in your own context. So, um, you know, we... Uh, we first met properly at the Festival of Education. Mm. And um, so I went to a talk by a Behaviour Insights team, I think it was, and uh, they were trying to give uh, different ideas that teachers could use in their classroom. Well, not in their classroom, but that, um, that they might be useful. So things for teachers, uh, school leaders, and then kind of system leaders. And um, afterwards, I kind of wandered off and thought, actually, I'm going to be teaching tomorrow, so how can I use this? Mm. And it was, it was quite fun to think about how I might be able to build it into my particular lesson. But it's not something I think I would have been that comfortable or confident doing if I were like in my first or second year, necessarily. Yeah, and it can be quite, you know, it can be quite difficult. We, we see this with things uh, like the growth mindset concept, that stuff can be kind of, you know, the, the, the headlines concepts can be taken and sometimes sort of misappropriated. And it's all about the kind of Im- implementation. It's how you uh, engage with an idea in the classroom. I remember actually probably one of the, the sort of first times that I really started engaging with um, EEF was looking at their toolkit and someone who was working quite heavily with learning technology at that time, you know, seeing that tech always falls as something that's probably not very effective and really quite expensive. Um, and I suppose I, I always just found that a challenge because I think then you see feedback up the top and you think, OK, but what if I'm using technology to support feedback? You know, they're not technology for me is a, a resource as opposed to um, an approach. And so it's understanding those interrelationships and that it's not just a list of things that you do. It's a understanding actually within feedback what's really effective, within metacognition what's really effective and how can we implement that. And really, really critically, how can we know if it's working? Because, you know, we've discussed already the, the challenges of, of context, meaning that there's not a kind of single approach that will always work. So can we give teachers the skills to understand whether what they're doing is working or not? And also, so that links to perhaps what would be my biggest criticism of schools having worked in schools and um, worked at different levels in schools is I feel sometimes in education for really clear reasons uh, people want to move very quickly and to implement things because they think that might work but where I feel that you know I'd be interested in your opinion about this that schools could do better and I'm thinking maybe more at school leadership level perhaps is evaluation of what happened you know sometimes things are implemented and then there's not really any true evaluation of how that's worked. So I was wondering about your views about that kind of thing. Yeah, I think there's quite an interesting area around how you develop a culture of being evidence engaged because you do see schools where um, they're really encouraging their teachers to engage with evidence to uh, use evidence to inform their practice but sometimes there's a disconnect between what's happening at a school level. So you know, when you're implementing a, a new school-wide initiative, have you gone out and looked at what the research says about that or is it an idea from a school down the road? And it's fine if it is an idea from a school down the road but making sure that you've kind of understood why that worked there, that you've maybe looked at what evidence there is to explain what are the critical points in getting that right. And I think to your point, having a sense of what, what is it you're trying to achieve by doing that, um, you know, it's probably not just a, an Ofsted rating, you know, what is it that's actually the point? And it's not always going to be exam results. Um, that's, you know, an interesting kind of dilemma around the, uh, the sort of Education Endowment Foundation stuff, which is that... Um, it's all focused on RCTs and you know needing to have kind of very measurable outcomes. And sometimes it will be quite different what you're trying to achieve in a school. It might be, uh, you know, some completely different area, something more qualitative that you're trying to achieve. But you need to be clear about what that is. And 
have some way of kind of measuring that and some way of baselining before you do it and understanding, you know, what, what is it that this project has done versus if we've done nothing. And that's something that we're probably not always that good at as a school. And I also, I wonder in schools, I don't know if this is harsh for me to say, but uh, so I'm quite interested in kind of business and startup things in general. And I wonder in schools how willing people are to embrace the fact that something may have failed but for that not to be the end of the world. So it might be that you evaluate, uh, I don't know, whatever you've rolled out and realise it didn't quite do what you wanted it to do. And I think sometimes there's a culture of, uh, maybe because of hyper-accountability or perceived hyper-accountability, that people don't want to admit that the thing that they proposed in SLT or whatever it is didn't work after you tried it for a year, um, rather than looking at, OK, these are the bits that we could amend and making that better. I don't know what your views are on that. I completely agree. I think that's really important, and particularly when it's something you've spent a lot of money on. There's a kind of, uh, you know, an inherent bias and you, you want it to it's work. It's to work. And, <laughs> and if, you, if you believe it's going to work, then you might find ways to, you know, to think that it has. And I think it's, it's really hard to get around that. And there is that, you know, that applies at the sort of individual teacher level and at the school level, that there's that sense of with engaging in uh, kind of evaluation is the risk that you'll figure out that what you were doing is not, uh, you know, is not necessarily really effective. And so what do you do if you've spent a lot of money on something, a lot of time on something, and you're realising it's not working, is that maybe there's a case of you need to tweak how you're using that. But in some cases, it might turn out that actually it was just not the right thing to be doing in the first place and taking that step back can be really difficult um i think in one of the uh, articles in impact stuart kind talks about the importance of kind of sort of parents and stakeholders as well because that's a really it's the, the challenge is also to turn around to your students and to your parents and say yeah this thing that we did that we told you was going to be great we're going to not do it now and to be able to do that without a sort of um sense of uh, of kind of criticism that that you know that idea of kind of challenging and engaging in uh, evidence informed practice is something with which we need to engage the whole school community and, and the whole system. I think the points that you made about um, evaluating stuff is if you make that point up front that we're going to try this, it is an evaluation of something, it's a pilot, this is how we're going to measure it and being really quite clear and quite open about that rather than that kind of all being something that happens in a sort of mysterious black box um, and then at the end you say yes we're carrying on with it or no we're not. I think you know I think that kind of openness is really important, that, that transparency and the more that it's something which is adopted system-wide uh, rather than just in an individual classroom or an individual school, the more powerful that becomes. And it, it absolutely requires a culture of, of trust, of kind of risk-taking, um, calculated risk-taking, of, of being willing to have challenge. Because, again, the other thing that can be really difficult with engagement with research is what if the research tells you that the thing that you've been doing for the last 10 years is wrong? How, you know, how does that make you feel as a, a teacher? Um, that's quite... a a difficult situation to be in but again if that's something that's kind of system-wide that your your school leaders are are reflecting and engaging in that way that makes it that much easier for you as a a classroom teacher to not feel that just because you've tried something and it hasn't worked that is suddenly going to be a problem for your performance management or uh, or anything else. Sounds like it kind of uh, requires a level of uh, self-reflection and humility on the part of teachers, school leaders, maybe policy makers as well just to kind of consider it and ongoing process of learning I suppose yeah absolutely that 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 idea of, of embracing constant cycles of improvement of evaluation of what we're doing I think is, is so critical to, to driving the profession forward and my final question then is um a kind of a question that I noticed from one of the delegates at the first first face event which was we kind of touched on it a little actually mm-hmm. which is basically in essence teachers have quite long working hours um, and they might want to get involved in research but do they need? Uh, do you think that we might need a uh, kind of CPD allowance for teachers? 
And I know that um, David Weston's quite keen for something like this, mm. for example. So what's your views? I think it's a really interesting idea, and we certainly need teachers to have more opportunity to engage in professional development. I think it's one of those things that's quite difficult to sort of police and design, because actually what's, you know, what looks like quality CPD, what constitutes CPD in a school, you can see that kind of being quite misused in, mm. in some cases. But I think what is really important is encouraging all teachers to engage in professional development. It's quite interesting when you talk to schools, depending on how um, sort of professional development opportunities are, are allocated, there can be scenarios where the teachers who are you know, really keen to engage in professional development are going and saying, can I go on this course? Can I go to this event? Great. Yes, yes, yes. But sometimes the teachers who most need that professional development opportunity, they're not the ones that are going and asking for it. And therefore, perhaps they're kind of being missed out. And so I certainly see advantages to models which... Um, which encourage all teachers to engage in professional development, whether that looks necessarily like a kind of compulsory CPD allowance. I'm not sure quite what that would look like in practice, um, but completely encourage engaging and recognising. I think it's really important that, you know, we know that teachers work far outside of their kind of core hours and... Um, actually having a school that's supportive and recognises the stuff that you're doing in your own time, that recognises that you've gone to a conference on a Saturday and is interested in the fact that you're engaging in that. And I think also importantly, it gives you a chance to feed that back in again. Um, we found it really interesting. Uh, we've kind of opened up a, a sort of writer's panel where we've uh, encouraged people to, to write for us about how they're using evidence and things like that. And we had within a couple of days of uh, opening uh, up sort of sign-ups for that, we had sort of 500 people wanting to write for us. And, you know, these are fantastically busy teachers. We yeah. know how busy they are and yet they want to contribute something so it can be really powerful in a school to say okay I know you've engaged in this CPD could you perhaps sort of write something about what you're doing there what that meant for you so that that becomes shared and it becomes part of a sort of collaborative community of practice experience rather than CPD in which you're engaging in isolation. Yeah I think it's interesting what you said because um, I remember uh, one uh, school that I worked at we had a particular allocation of CPD that we had to kind of uh, fulfill for example and um, I think maybe one year like I hadn't met it but then I was just like mate I've been to I don't know five or six things in my own time on the Saturday <laughs> and I've done XYZ and that but and that's not counted but and, it's, and it way exceeds the number of hours that I'm supposed to have done but I need to tick a box or something mm. like that and um, I wasn't massively in love with that because <laughs> it's kind of the point is that you want to develop as a professional and that was in my view f- fairly clear that I had done that yeah um but so I think the key part of your answer that we still have for me was when you said the word quality I think the quality is the thing rather than the quantity and it, and you're having kind of a bit of autonomy over that and you know actually it's about a culture question there it's about you as a teacher recognizing the value of engaging in professional development and your school recognizing in that value and making sure that you have time to do that and if it's something you do in your own time you know what is there that they can do during kind of you know during the school day to support and recognize that you're doing that mm. okay so Kat um I've run out of questions now there's always questions but you know so I've got yeah. to the end of my questions is there anything that you'd like to add that I haven't asked uh no I think it's been a very nice wide-ranging conversation that's and, it uh, <laughs> an absolute pleasure to talk to you hey people I love making this podcast If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. 1. Subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. 2. Share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. 3. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.